here's a pastor up in College Place, Washington, by the name of John Bradshaw. He had no idea that he was even being considered. He, get a phone, he gets a phone call. We want you to come down and meet with us. We want you to be, it is written, speaker director. What? Me? <laughs> you see, if somebody seeks a position, very likely the Lord isn't in it. It's those that are chosen without their seeking a position. That's his story. Now today, today we're going to hear his story. I, I was supposed to speak today, but we've had a few things happening that uh, took up my, my time. And uh, so in the mail, just when I was trying to decide, can I possibly do it or not, here came these uh, videos. And uh, he tells his story. You'll never forget this story, I assure you. And if you think God is not leading our work and in charge of everything, just wait till you hear John Bradshaw's story. I am fond of saying that I was born on the wrong side of the tracks in a town in which there was no right side of the tracks. And there were tracks that ran right down and still run right down the middle of my hometown in the, the north, central north part of the North Island of New Zealand. State Highway 1 runs right past our front doorstep, or at least out front, uh, right past our, our mailbox. Let's get that straight. And just over there is the main railroad, and it ran right through the center of town. Not a bad town, a good town, a wonderful place to be raised, a wonderful place. My family has had been in that town for a couple of decades before I arrived on the scene. I was born, uh, privileged really to be born, into a very devoutly Roman Catholic family. We lived five doors down from our local Catholic church. There was no family that attended the church that lived closer to the church than we did until the Brownleys moved out from next door and the Thorpes moved in and they were one door closer to us. Now I remember that the O'Shea's, the, uh, one of the, the, the lawyer in town, the O'Shea's used to live right across the church next to the convent where the nuns lived. They moved out, the priest moved in there, so we didn't count the nuns and priests. I mean of the families who attended, we were that close, five doors down. Church was always an enormous part of our life. Our belief as Roman Catholics and as believers of, in Jesus and in God were at the very forefront of our lives. We believed and we knew that we believed. I don't know that we really knew what we believed or why we believed what we believed, but we believed and we were proud to do so. At the, from the earliest age, my earliest recollections were going to Mass. Just the first thing I ever did. Uh, my dad would take all of the Bradshaw children. There were seven in all, and so there were Sundays. The dad and seven of us kids were taking up a whole row, a whole pew, uh, Dad would hold me in his arms as a little baby. My mother didn't attend church. She was not a member of our church, was not a member of any church, and is actually still not a member of any church. And if you run out of things to pray for, if you would pray for my mother that she would know Jesus as her Lord and Savior, I would greatly appreciate it. I started school at St. Paul's School, five doors down on the same grounds as our local church at the age of five. And, and being taught at a parochial school really gave us an advantage. We were taught that God mattered. We were taught that God um, introduced himself into every part of your life. And I was just as happy as a clam to be attending that school. We had about, oh, 110, maybe 120, that many children, four classrooms. It was a four-teacher school, two nuns and two lay teachers. And so God was very important. Uh, at about the age of seven years old, I guess, I made my first confession and then my first Holy Communion, and I quickly became an altar boy after that. Well, somewhere along the line, pleased to be a part of this church, in church every week. As a matter of fact, I did better than that. As an altar boy, there was a time I didn't miss Mass for two and a half years. And I'm not saying I didn't miss a Sunday. I'm saying I didn't miss a day. And if you do the math, what is that? That's about 900. I was like the Cal Ripken of altar boys. I had a streak going that had never been matched before in that church and has never been matched since. About 900 days in a row. 
and because I loved it. We had a great church, nice people, good priests. I know the Catholic Church has taken a bit of heat recently because of the uh, misdeeds of of some of the clergy and, and of course we know that's not merely confined to the Roman Catholic Church so let's not make it sound as though they're the only one who has that problem we on the other hand had tremendous priests in our local church as far as any of us knew they were great guys they weren't perfect they were good guys it's very interesting sometimes we'd arrive at the church and of course it was the priest's job to get there and unlock the door and let us in and remember I was going every day for a couple of years and so there was <laughs> There were several times they'd all look at me. I'd be there, a couple of nuns would be there, two or three lay people would be there and the priest wouldn't be and they'd look at me and I had to have to go over to the, to the presbytery, that's what we called this house, and bang on the door. Father, wake up! Father, wake up! We had a couple of guys who used to spend a little too much time at the local pub and so sometimes it was hard for them to wake up in the morning. Good guys though, good guys. But not perfect guys. So there I was in my local Catholic church, happy to be there, enjoying it very much. I was an altar boy. We had fine priests. We were receiving a good education. But I started to have some questions. Questions like this. There would be a funeral. And during the funeral, the funerals were always held in the church. Never in a funeral home, always in the church. We would be in the church and I would be up front serving mass as an altar boy and the priest would be addressing the congregation and would say something like, today we can afford to be very happy, very glad for even though we've experienced great loss, we can know that granddad or mother or whoever it was is in heaven now in the presence of God praising God. And we can be thankful for that. And of course that is some measure of comfort to a person who is grieving. But then... 30 minutes later, we would be at the graveside. And as the body is being, as the, as the casket with the body inside it is being lowered into the heart of the earth, that same priest would say about the same person, and now we commit granddad's body to the grave where he will rest, a peaceful rest until the day when Jesus comes back and the dead in Christ shall rise. I wanted to put up my hand. May I ask a question? But I knew what the answer was. No, you may not answer, ask a question. I wanted to find out how the same dead person could be in heaven and in the grave at the same time. I never did get a satisfactory answer to that question. So I wondered about that. I also wondered why we prayed to dead people. I knew that Jesus was very much alive, but when you lost something, you were to pray to the patron saint of lost things. And my understanding was that was St. Anthony. Or a piano player would pray to St. Cecilia, who was the patron saint of piano players. Or a carpenter would pray to St. Joseph, who was the patron saint of carpenters. And I couldn't figure out why in the world we just never prayed to Jesus. Surely, God knew where my tennis ball was and I didn't have to ask St. Anthony. I didn't have to. But you don't ask too many questions and you just wonder about these things. I also wondered about a God who would take sinners and burn them forever and ever and ever and ever and you get the idea. Now we were told that God is love. <laughs> you just don't want to get on his bad side. Because if you do, it's curtains for you. Now, we had, fortunately, an escape hatch. I must have attended a very, very good church with very holy people because even though I went, I went to dozens of funerals, especially as an altar boy, not one of those people ever went to hell. <laughs> I was fortunate that, that I, they either all went to heaven or they could go to purgatory. Now, purgatory wasn't as bad as hell. It certainly wasn't heaven. It was like a, a halfway point. And I'm telling you from my understanding. It was like a halfway point. That is, you weren't good enough to go to heaven. You weren't bad enough to go to hell. So you went to purgatory. And in a certain sense, you atoned for your sins there for a while. And after said while, you could be dispatched from there all the way to glory. <clears throat> now, that was some measure of relief to a person who didn't feel like he was probably going to go to heaven. But the way purgatory was described to me, it wasn't a very desirable place either. They made it sound like it was hot. 
They made it sound like there was a whole lot of difficulty and drudgery. And I imagine being in the, in the hot, hot, hot sun breaking rocks with a sledgehammer for a couple of thousand years. That's just how I imagined it. And it didn't tickle my fancy at all. I was struggling. Because I was going to a church that I loved very much. There were a lot of very good people. This was where my family attended church. I mean, we were the biggest church on the planet. We had the Pope. Oh, that was another thing. I met some pretty special people in my time. But I didn't see how anybody could be infallible. I wrestled with that. Infallible when he spoke ex cathedra. That means on matters of faith and doctrine and morals. Now, I had a lot of respect for Pope Paul VI back there in the early 1970s, but I had no idea in the world how this fella could be beyond making a mistake. Infallible. That's a big word, you understand. And so I wrestled. I, I wondered what to do. I didn't know what to do. So you put your head down, you tail up, you carry on, you just you stiff up a lip and all that. And you believe that one day you'll get it all figured out and God will show you what you need God to show you. In the meanwhile, I labored on in my Catholic school. And when I say labored on, sometimes it was hard labor. We had, we had fine teachers until Sister Mary Dionysia came to school. Now, unfortunately for her, Dionysia and dinosaur don't sound too dissimilar. So you know what the children called her. Now, calling her dinosaur was actually very unfair to dinosaurs because she was much older than any dinosaur that had ever roamed the earth. She was a tyrant. Discipline was spelled with a capital D. In fact, the whole word was spelled in capital letters. It was underlined and there were exclamation marks after it. Discipline. And she'd get you with whatever she could. The yardstick across the back of your thighs. Wah, that would get your attention. But if she didn't have time to grab the yardstick, she would grab the feather duster by the feathers. And there was a, a piece of dowel there that when she, when she wielded it, whoom, you could hear it whizzing through the air. And you knew, oh, when it lands on my upper arm, this is going <gasps> to hurt. And boy, did it hurt. But better still, there were two other things. One... If she couldn't find the yardstick or the feather duster, she'd just grab the top of your hair and shake your head. And that's why I got this on the top of my head. Because she would shake me like that. Huh. What's worse is the nuns would wear a heavy iron ring, a steel ring. And there were times she would turn that thing around so the knob was facing forward. She had a good sharp right. I tell you what, there was a time uh, Muhammad Ali turned down a fight with Sister Mary Dionysia. Now, bam, 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 right into the base of your skull. Oh, today we would call that abuse. Back then, discipline. And you didn't go home and tell Dad about it because Dad would say, well, if the nuns needed to give you some of that, I better give you some of that too. So we would just be quiet about it. I have dents in the base of my skull from the time Sister Mary, the times Sister Mary Dionysia did you ever hear of the Emperor Diocletian? That 10 years of tribulation talked about in Revelation chapter 2? Yeah, we might have called her Diocletian and Dionysia. But you know, I tell you a funny thing about Sister Mary Dinosaur. Let me tell you a funny thing about her. When my father died in 1995, of course you get the mail, the, the sympathy cards, and that's so appreciated. A couple of weeks after he died, we received a card and the return address on the back of the envelope. That's how they do it in civilized countries. They write it on the back of the envelope. And it was from Oportiki. Do you know anyone there? No. Where? Who would be? There was no name but an address. So we opened up the card and we started reading, Dear Bradshaw family, the sweetest. I mean most heartfelt Christian. I mean, it was, it was, was poetry and scripture and beauty and pathos. We said, who's writing this? And at the bottom of the card, guess who it was? Sister Mary Dinosaur. She wrote it in her own handwriting. Well, Dionysia. We figured the problem probably wasn't with her. The problem might have been with us, you think? Might have been. So there we were. Getting older, going through school, I'm starting to say, there's a problem. Not only is my church not seeming to make sense, just sense to me. I didn't have a clue about what the Bible said, but some of these things just didn't make sense. 
there was something else going on. You see, in our church above the altar, there was a large crucifix. Jesus with his feet together, his arms out, his head down towards his chest. I mean, it was the most sanitized crucifixion you ever saw with a couple of drops of blood on his forehead. This little drop down his side here from where the spear had gone in and drops the other places. But nevertheless, this crucifix reminded me on a daily basis that Jesus had died for me. That Jesus, the Son of God, I knew he was God in the flesh, had died for me. I couldn't walk into my church without coming face to face with the realization that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. I knew that. Now, I'm not advocating for crucifixes. Don't worry, you're not going to turn on the It Is Written television program and see a crucifix on the wall behind me. That's not going to happen. All I'm saying is that when I was a young child growing up, this image of Jesus dying on the cross spoke to my heart. I knew there was a heaven. I knew there was a hell. I knew there was a heaven. I wanted to go there. I wanted not just to go there for selfish reasons, but I wanted to honor this Jesus who had died for me. That meant something to me. But there was a problem. I knew that heaven was for good people. The reason I knew that is because I had been told that heaven was where you go if you're good. And I knew I wasn't good. How many doors from the Catholic Church did we live? We'd go to confession. That was another thing. Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. It has been two weeks since my last confession. Here are my sins. And then you'd, you'd recite your litany of sins and you'd say an act of contrition and then he would, he would assign your penance to you. Well, we want you to say two Hail Marys and two Our Fathers. That's the Lord's Prayer. And you know, a, a, a young fellow who'd practiced this could get through two and two in about 37 seconds. And 37 seconds of kneeling down and rattling through four little prayers didn't seem like a very expensive price to pay for a whole lot of sin. I wondered about saying to a man, you know, there's something dehumanizing about having to tell someone your deepest and darkest secrets, and that is known and understood. In fact, my brother one time told me, he went to confession, and the priest said, so what have you got to say? And he said, well, Father, I, I, I just haven't done anything wrong in the last week. There's only been a week, and I, there were no sins. No, I don't, no, 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 that's not right. I, that can't be right. No, really, Father, I cannot think of anything wrong, any sins that I've committed. I've had a good week. The priest said, I don't believe that. You need to tell me the truth. He said, he started making sins up. The priest nodded his head and said, that's better, that's better. I would have thought better was I haven't committed any sins. Clearly, better was I've been out there living like a devil. We struggled with the idea of confession. I would get back from confession five doors down the street. There was, our, there was the church and then the convent on the corner, one, and then the walls, two. And then, you know, I never ever did know who these people were, never. They lived in a big old ramshackle house behind a whole bunch of old trees. That was three. And then, then there was a driveway going down to the Smiths who lived behind the Brownleys and then the Thorpes. Four. And then us. I would, I, it doesn't take you long to get home when you're five doors from the church. Invariably, I had sinned before I got home from church. Now, normally I'd go to confession with my brother four years older than me. If you had a brother like mine, you would have sinned too by the time you got back from confession. <laughs> he tells people the same thing about me. There was no way in the world I was ever going to be good enough to go to heaven. No way in the world. And when you are nine years old, 10 years old, 11 years old, and you know there is a heaven and there is a God and there is a Jesus who loves you and who wants you to be in heaven and you come to the realization that you will never be good enough to go. That will fill you with desperation. So I wondered, how in the world am I ever going to go to heaven? And, and how in the world am I ever going to be good? In Here's what I didn't realize at the time. I was looking for Jesus. That's what I was looking for. My faith didn't seem to add up. I mean, I connected the dots and it was just a mess. There were beliefs that couldn't possibly be right. There was a heaven that I, in my wickedness and sinfulness, couldn't possibly go to. I was looking to know the way to heaven and I couldn't find the way. And I'm a child, no younger than my own son. So I figured, well... Maybe you just don't ask questions. Maybe you do. Maybe you'll figure it out somewhere along the line. I tried not to worry about it too much and just kept on going to church. As I got older, 
I had opportunity to start learning some new things and visiting some new churches. I was looking for meaning in my faith. That was important to me. I was looking for worship that mattered, meaning in my faith, looking for the way to heaven and looking for a way to know this Jesus. <clears throat> so far, none of it had added up. So, when I got to high school, we started to experiment with other churches around the place. There was a youth group run by some of the guys in my high school. I went to it. It was a Protestant youth group. And we just went for the good times and for the fun and for the laughs. And there was some prayer and whatever. And we didn't take it too seriously until Rosalind Black showed up. And then when we found out where Rosalind Black went to church, my mate Tony and I, we decided we need to visit that church. It was, it, if it was a Catholic church, it would have been known as Our Lady of the Pretty Girls. That's what it would have been called. And we decided, pretty girls, that's the church for us. Let's go. So we rolled up to the church and the music was great and the girls were pretty and what, I mean, <laughs> you're going to find this hard to believe, I know, I know. We expected just to roll in and the girls would just flock to us because after all, we were so cool. I mean, you're not going to find that hard to believe. What you'll struggle with, <laughs> we turned up, my friend Tony and I, thinking we, we were God's gift to women, 13 years old, and they didn't even... They didn't even know we were there. I mean, how can that be? They just looked right past us. Somehow we didn't make the splash we thought we were going to make. There was Rosalind. You know, I had forgotten her friend's name. Her friend was Bronwyn. This is a long... Some things make an impact on you, you understand. And so we decided that wasn't the church for us. Couldn't possibly be the church for us. There were other reasons too, and then it's probably best I don't go into them, but we decided that couldn't possibly be the place. So we thought some more. I was on my own now. Tony was done with me. We thought some more. And then I decided that I would go to the local rock music church. As I got a little bit older, our, our Catholic church uh, got tied up with the Catholic charismatic movement. We had a priest, Father Armstrong, who spoke in tongues. Not in church, mind you. That wouldn't go down well. But there were times and places that he did. And so this gave rise to a group of believers who would get together within the confines of our church, usually at the priest's house, and we would sing and praise God, and we would sing cool songs, and Ben would play the guitar, and there would be people who spoke in tongues. And so we were quite an ecumenically minded group. There were other groups around town who would do this, and one of them was the rock music church downtown. In fact, on Sunday evenings, we'd get together, we would do our thing, and then we would walk together down to the Church of England, the Anglican church, and we would fellowship with them, and then we'd walk up the road a little bit to the, to the rock music church. <clears throat> and we'd hang out with those guys for a while. This was very ecumenical, and trust me, we knew what ecumenism meant. Ecumenism meant that they are going to become like us. We're not becoming like them. We understood that. And so we would go here, and they were kind of straight-laced, and then we would go to the rock music church. And the music, I mean, they were jumping. They had drums, man, and electric guitars, and a bass guitar, and, and singers who sang into microphones and everything. It was a lot like a nightclub. And so we went to the rock music church, and that was kind of fun for a while, um, until the, the bass player told me that the pastor's wife swore like a sailor. I said, what is that about? Yeah, he said, you don't want to get her mad. If you get her mad, buddy, she's going she gonna to let you have it. That's the pastor's wife, right? Yeah, Whew. you want to keep away from her when she's in a bad mood. I thought about that. I thought I was looking to be better. I didn't need to learn how to swear like a sailor. I had already got an A plus in that discipline. I didn't need to, to, to rise to that depth, if you know what I mean. So I thought, Lord, I'm looking for a faith that's going to liberate me from this, this, this wretched place that I am because I want to be good. Surely I need Jesus in my life. I didn't know how to figure that out. I realized that the rock music church wasn't the church for me. But what they did do was they introduced us to the Holy Spirit church. Now, if you want an exciting church, you've got to get yourself to a Holy Spirit church. I mean, we went there and their arms were doing all this. And there's nothing wrong with raising your arms, I understand that. Uh, but then when the Holy Spirit showed up, people were speaking in all these languages. I never could understand one or figure out what they were, but there was making all these sounds. And the miracles, the miracles were dramatic. 
And I remember being at the healing service, and, and up, typically the pastor would ask for people to come up, or the guest speaker, and he, and, he, and he might ask you what your sickness is, and he might not, and then he would place his hand on your forehead, and he'd pray, and he'd pray down the power of God, and then he'd pray and stamp his foot, and as he stamped his foot, he would push the person, and of course, what could they do but fall backwards? And they would have a catcher there, with a big mitt and a face mask, and he would be catching... And he would catch people and he would lay them down. And it's very hard actually to fall over in a church in a dignified fashion. But they would help you as best you could. And this night they were asking for people to come forward to be healed. And man, they ran forward. And I sat there with my friend Lindley and I said, Lindley, uh, I've never felt so bad about being healthy in all of my life. I would like to go forward and get healed, but I can't think of anything that's wrong with me. She was evidently pretty healthy as well. I said, ah, my eye. She said, what about your eye? I said, I don't see very well out of this eye. I have a, an astigmatism. I didn't know that word then. We called it a defective cornea. I have a defective cornea in my eye. And I would love to be able to see well out of my left eye. Praise the Lord. I'm being healed tonight. Up I got forward. I went. I said, this is going to be great. I'll be healed. Holy Spirit is here. And the preacher man, who now, funny enough, is in the greater Los Angeles area. I'm going to track him down. <laughs> I know his name. I, I Googled him. I found him. And the preacher said, and what's your problem? I said, man, I just don't see out of this eye, preacher. He said, all right, God is going to heal you tonight. And, and you know, everybody, God, is, there's going to be a, someone healed out here tonight. Everybody is praising the Lord. And he would take his hand and put it on my forehead like this. And he would pray and he would call down the power of God and stamp his foot like this and what could I do but fall backwards on the ground and I thought oh this is going to be interesting in my church you know, <laughs> in fact I did fall over once at midnight mass <laughs> I was up in the balcony and the chairs made a terrible noise and I fell over on the feet of my uncle Pat that was for a very different reason <laughs> I forgot about that I thought to myself, you just don't fall over in church where I'm from. And back I went, they laid me down on the ground, and I thought two things. I thought, well, am I healed? And then I thought, what do I do now? I mean, you don't want to be the guy who falls over and just jumps back up, because normally when they fall over, they stay down for a while. And I didn't know how long I should stay down, and I didn't know whether I should be healed or not healed, and I, I, had, to just, I had to figure out what was going on around me. And so while I'm laying on the ground, I, I open one eye like that, and I look this way, and that guy's still on the ground. I better stay here too. <laughs> what about the guy over there? I open this eye and I look and I can't see. It's the bad eye. And I, I... Hey, wait a minute. I'm not healed. Oh, it was time to get up then. No more laying down. It wasn't going to help. I got up. I went back. Lindley says, are you healed? Are you healed? I said, no. It's not, no, I don't think. She said, well, maybe tomorrow. Maybe you'll be healed tomorrow. So I hung on and... Later on, I found out why I wasn't healed. It was because I didn't have faith. Oh, well. Not much for that. There was another time I went to one of these uh, very Holy Spirit-oriented revival meetings. And uh, this man wanted you to come forward and so he could do a prophecy on you, a prophesy over you. And so I did. I came forward and he put his hand on my head and he said, Young man, one day you're going to use that fiery red hair of yours to preach the gospel. I walked away from here saying, another phony. What does he know? <laughs> Funny how that works out. So that was that. I still hadn't found what I was looking for. I was looking for a faith that added up. A place that would help this bad boy to be a good boy. I didn't know, but I was looking for Jesus. I wanted to be saved. I didn't know the way. I got through high school, went to university, and then, and then I landed a job in the radio industry. I got involved with a student radio station and then worked in commercial radio. And this was going to be where I made my mark in the world. This was, I was going to fly high and do well. I had people egging me on. Things were going great. Before long, I was doing my own breakfast radio show. And the breakfast show is the, is the high, is, that's, the, that's the money show. That's the one that matters the most. 
you'd start the day with the big audience and that flows over to the rest of the day. And I was doing my breakfast radio show. You know, I learned some interesting things uh, during my time in radio. I tell you this story with just a little bit of trepidation. It's a true story. I tell you the story because it makes a point and it helped me learn something in that secular environment that helps me even today as a minister of the gospel. We were having a planning session, a brainstorming session. It was the program director, a man of about 32 years of age, and my, my, my female co-host and I. And the PD, the program director, was saying, man, we need to do something that's going to push us over the top. We need to get people in this town talking about us. We need to do some great, great program that, that, that we've never done before. And that was my cue to say something, and so I did. This, this bolt of inspiration hit me. I said, I know what we can do. What? I said, we can do this city's, as far as I know, it would only ever be the second one done in the country. We can do this city's first ever completely nude radio breakfast show. <laughs> the reactions in that room were interesting. The program director said, great idea. The female co-host said, that's not a good idea at all. I said, it'll be great. We can do this radio program. We'll tell people we're broadcasting in the nude. People will be talking about us all over town. She said, I'm not broadcasting and no clothes on. I said, neither am I. This is radio, not television. We just tell them we are and we just let them run with it. It's okay. It's radio. She said, I have nothing to do with this. You're on your own, which was just as well. She was a wet blanket. The program director said, great. It's just you, man. Go get them. And so we, we started advertising it right away. Right away. And sure enough, just like I knew would happen, people in the street were stopping me. Don't say you're going to broadcast naked. I said, oh, yeah, man, we, we're edgy. We, I mean, there's nothing we won't do. As a matter of fact, after the Tiananmen Square uh, disaster, we, I, I was egged on. You should be careful who you put together. I was egged on by another broadcaster, and we called the Chinese embassy and the upshot was we were threatened the government was going to close our radio station after we uh, insulted the Chinese. We were exultant. We said, we'll go down in history as being the guys who got the radio station closed down. I guess we thought differently back then. So this day we were advertising and the day was coming. I think it was a Tuesday morning. We pushed it all weekend long, all Monday. John Bradshaw, the nude radio show. It's going to, we start at six, but the nude part will be between seven and eight. You can't miss it. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, that's just a bit weird. <laughs> so what do I do? I just tell people, and I'm fully clothed. Hey, everybody, I'm sitting here with no clothes on. That's, that's, that's not even fun after a few moments, you know? So I wondered, how am I going to make this thing happen in a way that actually works? Well, I came out of the weather, played my theme music, and inspiration came. I don't know where it came from, but it came. And I knew what to do. I said, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the John Bradshaw Radio Show. And this morning we're broadcasting nude. Here's what I want you to do. We are utilizing the very latest in broadcast technology. We are simulcasting this program on radio and television. So go to your TV set. This was all very much stream of consciousness. Go to your television set and turn the, the channel. This was in the old days, you know. Turn the channel to channel four. There was no, nothing on channel four. Turn to channel four. And then I had a flashback to the days my brother and I got in trouble for monkeying around behind my dad's 26-inch black and white golden night television set. There were these buttons back there. And if you tune the buttons, the picture would flip like that. It would cave in like that. Uh, it would get all white, be snowy. I don't know what those things were for. I said, turn the television set to channel four, and then if you reach around behind your TV set, you're going to find these buttons back there. If you turn those buttons and tune them right, the picture will come through, and you'll be able to watch the nude radio program as well as listen to it. <laughs> and I pressed the button and started a record, and I sat back and I said, this will be interesting. took about 15 seconds for those lights to start lighting up on the telephone. You, it doesn't ring in a radio studio. You don't want that. The lights start flashing on the switchboard. They were li flashing like lights on a Christmas tree. I thought, wow, it's the old people calling. They're mad as hornets. 
That's fine. At least they're mad with me. So I answered the phone. I said, hello, this is John. And the voice says, hello, John. This is Jim calling. I said, Jim, how can I help you? He said, now what channel did you say that was? <laughs> Hold on a minute, Jim. I did something you never do. We, 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 I faded the record down right away after about 45 seconds. You don't do that. Faded it down. Put this guy live on the radio. Had no clue what he was going to say. I said, Jim, you're on, you're on air with me. What was your question again? He said, now what channel, John, did you say that was on? I said, channel four, Jim. The guy goes like this. He goes, channel four, honey, like that. <laughs> Unbelievable. And then he said, and what buttons did you say that I need to, to turn? I said, well, you just, all of them. I said, all of them, everything you can find. You just keep turning those things. All of them, honey, just keep on turning them. The picture will come through. I, I was curious. I said, Jim, what are you seeing? He said, oh, John, the picture's starting to come through. We're starting to see. I don't know what he was looking at. It wasn't me. I got thank you cards from television repairmen for weeks after that uh, radio program. Weeks. You know what I learned? I learned that there are people who will believe anything at all. And that's true in church too. There's a reason people just believe stuff they're told. Because they don't use common sense and they don't check. Anybody in the world knew that we weren't going to be simulcasting, broadcasting naked. Are you kidding me? Me? Uh-uh. And it's the same in church. Preacher tells them they just nod their head. Uh-huh. Preacher said so. Must be true. Nude radio program is far more believable than some of the stuff you hear in church today. And so I'm never surprised anymore when I hear of people believing what they believe. Just not surprised. As a Christian now, I was starting to get into a pretty bad place. It was becoming easier for me to sleep off a hangover on a Sunday morning than it was to get out of bed and go to church. That worried me. I wanted to be good enough to go to heaven. I was almost at the place where I just had to quit knowing that I would just never go. I had this faith that didn't make any sense at all. At all. When I was 16 years old, I was having a conversation with my brother. Now, when I was nine years old, this brother had left our church and become a Seventh-day Adventist. I said to him at the time, nine years old, I said, why Saturday? He said, well, let's look in the Bible. That's always a good way to begin an answer. Let's look in the Bible. So he turned in the Bible to Exodus chapter 20. He put his finger on verse 8 and he said, why don't you read what it says? And so I did. I read, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Keep reading. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. I said, what's your problem there? He said, what day is the seventh day? I said, Sunday? He said, look on the calendar. The calendar was a calendar that my dad bought every year from our church. So it had to be right. I went to the calendar and started counting. One, two, three, four, five, six, Saturday? Mm -hmm. I turned to my mother who was in the room. I said, Mom, is Saturday the seventh day of the week? She said, yes, it is. It, you could look in the dictionary. It'll tell you it's the seventh day of the week. I said to my brother, so why do we go to church on Sunday? He said, because if you just look at history, you will discover that your church changed the day of worship from Saturday, the Sabbath, to Sunday. I said, well, if my church changed the day, must be okay then. But I knew it wasn't. Even at nine years old, I didn't think any human being had the authority to change a commandment of God. Well, now I'm 16. I'm conversing with this brother of mine. I don't see him very often because he's living in another country now. He started asking me questions. What do you think happens to a person when they die? I said, man, I don't think they go straight to heaven. I mean, how can that be? Because the body's in the grave. The priests say there's going to be a resurrection one day. So I guess there's going to be a resurrection. When the resurrection takes place, then we go to heaven. He said, funny thing, I believe that too. I was mortified that I believed the same as my heretic brother. 
Because mark my words, we were strong in our belief that if you didn't go to our church, you were going to hell. I mean, that was nothing, no offense meant. That was just the fact. He asked me about praying to saints. I told him, he said, that's what I believe. He asked about hell and confession and several other things. What do you believe about that? I told him, he said, I believe the same as you. Oh man, that messed with my mind. What do I do now? He said, I'd like, to, I'd like to give you a book. He reached into his little bag. He pulled out a copy of a book. And he gave me this book. He said, it's about history and prophecy. And, and if you read this book, you'll really love it. I said, I will read the book. And you know, I trusted my brother because his new religion had really been good for him. It had straightened out his life. He was a good person. He was, it was great. I said, all right. I started reading the introduction. I didn't get very far. Four years later, he says to me, did you ever read that book I gave you? I said, no, I didn't. He reached into his bag. He pulled out another copy. He said, well, why don't you read this one? I started reading page one because I got hung up on the introduction. I read page one. I said, wow, this is a great book. I have to get back to this book. I put the book down and never went back to it. At about 22 or 23, I left New Zealand, as young New Zealanders are wont to do, to travel internationally. What we would do is we would leave New Zealand, go to England, earn British pounds, and spend them having the time of our lives traveling and seeing the world and just doing whatever we wanted to do. So I went to England. I got a job. I started earning British pounds, and I thought, now that I'm here, I'm going to see if I go to church here. If I can find a faith that really seems to work, I'll go to my church. I'll, I'll, I'll see whether they've got answers. I'll see if it makes sense. I'll see if I can find Jesus there. I'll see if I can be good enough to go to heaven because of what I learned there. Well, I tried it. Might have been me, who knows, but it just didn't seem to work. It just didn't seem to work. But then I decided that I would take a journey to Ireland. Ireland is the land of my ancestry. My grandmother was born there on the banks of the river Shannon. That's why my daughter's name is Shannon. She's named after the river. I went to Ireland. I was, I was staying at a pub. I said to the publican, a man named Eddie Benson, I said, Eddie, where's the nearest church that I could go to? Here I am in this very religious country, very Catholic country. If I'm going to find meaning in my faith, I'm going to find it there. He said, you need to go to St. Savior's Church. He told me how to get there. You go out of the pub, down, take a road to the right. Uh, then you take another right, and it was then a left. There it was. Sunday morning, through the fog. Stumbled out of bed, made my way down the streets to the church. I said, Lord, I've got to find something that means something. You know I've been looking for years. And I've got to be good enough to go to heaven. And I've got to figure this thing out. And I need to have a belief system that actually stacks up. So I'm going to church today and I'm hoping to find you there. And I went to church. It was an old, cold-looking church. And the way it seemed to me, there was an old, cold priest and a smattering of old, cold people. I said, this is a big city. There's about 20 people in church. I was done. I'd looked, I'd tried, I'd searched, I'd sought, and I hadn't found. And my spiritual needs, whether they were right or wrong, weren't met that day. I decided that I was going to leave and never go back. <clears throat> and as I walked back to the pub, it was a Sunday morning, it was a gray, overcast Irish sky there in Limerick, Ireland, as I walked down the street, and I mean the street, not the sidewalk, but the street, I would walk kicking stones as I went, watching them bounce down the street. I'd kick another one like this. And I stopped right there in the street, and I looked up to heaven. I took my hand out of my overcoat pocket, and I held it up towards heaven, and I pointed my finger up to where God lives, and I said out loud, I am never going back to church again until you show me the truth. That's it. And I felt the weight of the world roll off my shoulders. This was God's problem now. I was done trying to solve it. I walked back to the pub and before long, I was back in London, England. Now, when I arrived in London, England, there was something waiting for me in the mail because I had written my brother 
And I had said to him, that book you gave me, I'd really like to read it. In fact, I've been looking for it in used bookstores. <clears throat> I feel like God wants me to read that book. <clears throat> I am searching, Wayne. My brother's name is Wayne. I'm searching. I've got to find answers. Well, two weeks after I mailed that letter, happened to coincide with my arrival back in London, and guess what was waiting for me in the mail? Copy number three of the great controversy. This time I said nothing will stop me from reading the book. And I'm not going to start in the introduction or in page one. I'm going to get over here to about the middle of the book where I know the prophecy. I'd read some prophecy. I'd read the late great planet Earth. <clears throat> I was fascinated. I couldn't believe how one man had so many neat answers for some very obviously complex biblical passages. I didn't believe what I read, but it was interesting. So when, when, when he told me prophecy halfway through, I turned to the halfway mark and I started to read. And I started to read about the scriptures of safeguard. And I started to read about modern revivals. And I started to read about spiritualism. And I read about the United States and prophecy and the mark of the beast. And I read about these amazing subjects. And here's what I would do. I, would, I lived in a crowded flat, a crowded apartment. We didn't have a shower. We just had a bath. There were people everywhere. I was out of work at the time. So my flatmates, they would all fight for the bathroom. And by bathroom, I mean room with bath. They would fight for the bath. There were some English people here. Some of you should have said amen. All right. They would fight for the bathroom in the uh, let's get ready to go to work hours of the day. Me, I would have none of that. I would wait up all night. TV would go off at 12 or 1. I'd run a nice big deep bath. No one would trouble me. I'd sink back into that warm water and read my book. And I would read this book and I'm reading about the prophecies and I'm reading about an American reformer and I'm reading about the 2300 days and I'm reading about the 1260 years and I'm reading about the time of trouble and God speaks to my heart and he says, John, it's now or never. Waiting for me at home was a lucrative career. I, 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 could be, <laughs> I could be doing it now. That was waiting for me there. Waiting for me at home was my family, my friends, rugby. I mean, rugby was really my religion. I went to church, but rugby was my religion, and we worshipped the rugby ball, you understand, and I would describe rugby as being a little bit like American football, but for real men. That's how we would describe rugby. <laughs> and as I read that book, you know what was interesting? As I read and learned and learned and read, there was a time that I just felt like what I had to do was take this book and throw it across the room and be done with it. Because as I read, I knew what was going to happen. God was calling me to give my life to Jesus. Yes, I was learning about the prophecies. That was good. I was learning the doctrines. That was great. But, but more than that, I learned the answer to my prayer. My prayer was, Lord, how do I become good enough to go to heaven? God told me, you don't ever get good enough to go to heaven. You hang on to Jesus and his goodness qualifies you to go to heaven. Isn't that right? It is Christ's righteousness that fits us for heaven. I said, it can't possibly be that easy believe in Jesus and be credited for his righteousness I thought well what about me though I'm a bad guy and as I read this book told me that what I needed to do was base my experience on the Bible funny enough that's it is written theme verse and has been for more than half a century man shall not live by bread alone but by what every word that proceeds from the mouth of God so I'm saying to God now what I need to do is is follow the Bible and make what's written in here the guide of my life? God said, yes, you do. And I started to count the cost. I said, what would my family say? I said, no, 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 I can't be bothered about that. My dad used to say, I can't be worried about what people think. I've got to be worried about what my Lord thinks. I said, all right, Dad, you've cooked your own goose. I'm going to take your advice. What about my friends? I figured if they're real friends, they'll be my friends if I'm a Christian or not. So that's not a problem. I see, what about my job? I earn a lot of money. In fact, it wasn't really a lot of money, but it was a lot of money for me then, and it was going to grow into an obscene amount of money. What about my job? What am I going to do with my life? 
And I remembered a verse of Scripture that the nuns taught us. I don't know why they taught us this verse, but it just got locked into my mind. What shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? I thought, I guess I could follow my career and have everything, and on Judgment Day, I'd have nothing. Probably better now to follow God and have heaven than follow the world and not be saved. I was sitting in that bathtub by now. The water's getting kind of cold. I'm adding more warm water, but I've run all the water out of the tank. And I said in my shivering, Lord, that's okay then. I'm going to follow you now. I'm going to follow you according to the Bible. And I'm just going to trust that you lead me. The next morning, I wondered, what am I going to do now? Where will I go to church? Well, I decided that my life was going to change, that I would follow God, that if the Bible said it, then it was for me, and by the grace of God, I would follow what the Bible says. But I needed to worship somewhere. had a great idea. I would call the operator. She answered. I said, hello, I wonder, please, if you could give me the phone number for the Seventh-day Adventist Cathedral. Now, I didn't know whether the Seventh-day Adventists had all of the answers, but I knew that they had the Sabbath, and I needed to keep the Sabbath because I'd known for years that the Seventh-day was the Sabbath. There was no point going to church on Sunday or Friday or Tuesday as my holy day, knowing the Seventh-day was the Sabbath. How am I going to explain that to God when I get to, when I, when I get to the gates and meet St. Peter, you know? So I said, uh, yeah, the, the, the Seventh-day Adventist Cathedral. I wasn't going to... I wanted to talk to a bishop or an archbishop. I figured that the Adventist cardinal would probably be way too busy. But if I could get at a bishop or an archbishop who could help me wrestle with my issues, that would really be something. The operator said, now, I cannot find the number of a cathedral. There's no, there's no cathedral listed here. Uh, I said, no, it'll be there because all the churches have their big place downtown. St. Paul's Cathedral, Westminster Abbey, the Baptists had a big old place down there. I said, they'll have one. She said, well... I found one in W1. That's the way they do the postal codes. Um, w West 1, as close to the center of the city as you can get. If you go to like the W14, you're way out in Shepherd's Bush or somewhere. W1, that's right downtown. I said, that's the cathedral. Let's have the number. So she gave me the number. I was just delighted and I thanked her profusely. And then I called the cathedral and I was excited because I was growing now. The Lord was leading me in truth. And these people, I'm guessing, followed the Bible and they had the Sabbath and I was just excited because I was starting my whole life now. And I felt like I'd found God. I'd found the Word of God. And I could follow the Bible now. And the phone rang. And it was picked up by someone who answered the telephone and said, Bueno. <laughs> what? Bueno. Now, I think being in Southern California, everybody here under, understands that someone from Mexico or, or Latin America, when they answer the telephone, they say, bueno. I don't know. I, I thought bueno meant good. I don't understand that, but that's all right. There's plenty in the English language. Maybe someone else wouldn't understand. Bueno. I said, no, no. Hello. I'm, I'm, this is John Bradshaw, and I'm, I've been reading a book. and I'm, I found out later he was the pastor of the Spanish language church. Who even knew that such things existed? I didn't know. I was in England. I thought the church services were in English. But I, I, I just didn't know. Bueno, I said, here's my phone number. And I gave him the phone number. And ah, I said, Lord, hung up the phone. Lord, I'm trying so hard. And there's, like, I get a bueno on the telephone. And I, what do I do? What do I do? <laughs> Kept reading my book. Didn't have a Bible. Two days later, I got a telephone call. Hello, John Bradshaw, please. I thought, oh, rather. This is John Bradshaw. Hello, John. This is Pastor David Cox. I'm calling from the New Gallery Church in central London. Yeah, great. I, yes, I said, I, I, I'm wanting to talk to you. I've been reading this book. Wonder if you've heard of it. Great controversy. Sounds familiar. Yes, sounds familiar. He said, where are you? I will visit you. No, man, you're not coming to my house. Uh... I didn't want him to have to drive all the way across London. I was living in Stoke Newington, N16. The church was in W1. He lived in Watford. That wasn't going to happen. He said, well, how about we, we arrange to meet? He said, why don't you come? I believe it was Wednesday night. Why don't you come on Wednesday night? We're having a revelation seminar. Oh, yeah, now you're talking. He gave me directions, and what I was puzzled about is he said that the, church, the cathedral, 
he, he never said there wasn't a cathedral. He told me that the cathedral, he told me, you get off the tube at Piccadilly Circus, walk up Regent Street, two blocks, get to Hedden Street, take a lift, you find a health food restaurant, and the church will be up this flight of stairs above a restaurant. That didn't sound legit. I got, off the, got out of the subway, I walked up the street, I was a little bit worried. I thought maybe I was being set up. London can be a bad town, I mean. I found Hedden Street, there's the restaurant, uh-huh, there's, <laughs> there's the stairway to heaven right there. Take that. Now, here's what, what surprised me. I was arriving right on time. I expected the people would be swarming. It would be like, like bees on a beehive, you know. Everybody in town's going to want to come to this church because these people, they follow the Bible and they have the Sabbath and they understand things right. Surely the whole place will be packed. Well, I made my way up the stairs and I got up and I turned right and there was the room and I looked and there was a man up front and with him there, five old ladies and two men who frankly worried me a lot, the two men. <laughs> I sat in the back watching. I said, no, I must, I must be in the wrong place. Seven people? I said, Lord, I, I've been, I prayed. I sat in the bathtub. I read the book. I pointed like this, and here I am with... with Five loaves and two fish. Where are the people? But I said, I said, oh man, and what is up with this? Where are the statues? And where's the where's the stations of the cross? And where's the grandeur? This is this is it's like an attic. And and God spoke and he said, didn't you pray and ask me to know the truth? Yes. Has anything you've heard so far not been the truth? Not so far as I know. I decided, you know, the building probably didn't matter. I thought if, as long as it's the truth, I would worship under a tree out in a field. It really didn't matter. I just needed to be God's truth. That's what mattered to me. And so I sat. The pastor was gracious enough to meet me. Now, you've got to understand, I thought I was being set up. When he saw me, he probably thought he was being set up. My hair was way down my back, down to about there. I had this, I had this sorry beard. It was just the sorriest beard you ever saw. Yeah. You know, if you can grow a nice beard, guys, knock yourself out. If you cannot... <laughs> It's not something you should do. Now, I was proud of it. It blew in the breeze a little bit, and that was fine. But it wasn't, it wasn't ever going to win a gold medal at the beard-growing Olympics, I can tell you that. I had my old jeans on with a couple of holes, and that was way back before holes were fashionable. The only shoes I had were, was, they were holy too, and had my overcoat. I spent 10 pounds on that at the op shop, which is a second-hand store, and uh, the earring right there dangling down and I know you know you look at someone and you try not to be bothered but sometimes you just go <laughs> and that's what he did hi nice to meet you we got talking I said I've read the book remember I read the book yes yes I said, I don't know everything there is to know about you people, but I, but, I, but I think I'm onto something here. I have some questions for you. I would ask him a question. He'd say, oh, there's a Bible text that speaks to that. He'd turn right there. Thought, wow, that was pretty good. I threw him out another question. He goes, well, back here we've got a verse. He'd turn right, there. right there, see that? I started making questions up so I could see him. It was great. I decided that I would come to church that Sabbath, the following Sabbath morning, and I arrived at church again, you know, looking like death warmed up. The people were so gracious. 
I, I couldn't help but love these people in spite of the way I looked, in spite of the fact that I was a stranger. They didn't know anything about me. They just loved me. I never. The irony was there was this little short lady, and I'm not making fun of her stature. She was just short. She wasn't a dwarf, but she was little. And, and, and she was like way down here, but her name was Hi, which was kind of funny. Like, <laughs> kind of expected your name would be low, but there she was. And she would see me, ah, she was from Cyprus, a little Cypriot lady, ah, she'd run up and hug me right around the knees, ah, great to see you. Well, who can't love these people? Wonderful. And I studied and I learned and I grew and I discovered that God in his mercy had answered my prayer. I often thought back to that little boy sitting up on the altar as an altar boy trying to figure out where the sense was in this. I thought of standing at countless gravesides while we lowered people into the heart of the earth, wondering how could they be, how does that work again? I had described myself way back then as a non-Catholic Catholic. I loved my church, but there were some things that didn't stack up. And worst of all, I didn't know how I could ever go to heaven because I was about chief of sinners. But the more I studied, the more I learned, the more I worshipped, I discovered that it wasn't about me, it was about Jesus. That when I claimed Jesus as my Lord and Savior, he would give me his righteousness and then he would work in me both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Uh, you know, I know I don't have time to tell you this, but I will anyway. My son and I, we would pray together, we still do, but when he was very little, and I remember him saying to me, saying in his prayer one day, and dear Jesus, help me to be good. And I said, wait, stop, stop, huh? stop, son. I don't want you to pray that prayer. Why, Dad? Don't pray that Jesus would help you to be good. And you know, when, when you're telling your kid, don't pray to be good, the kid is going to be confused at two years old. But we were having the talk. I said, son, you're old enough for this now. You're two years old. And we need to be having this conversation. I said, Jacob, the Bible says that there is none that doeth good. No, not one. And Jesus said there is no one who is good but the Father. So if you are praying that God would help you to be good, you are praying an impossibility. And I knew what would happen. He'd get older, trying to be good, and he'd be trying and failing, and he'd be praying, make me good, and he'd try and fail and try and fail. And then if he's intellectually honest, he would leave the church. And if he's not intellectually honest, he would hang around and be miserable for the rest of his life and make other people miserable. I said, no, son, you don't want to pray that Jesus would make you good. You want to pray that Jesus would come into your heart and live his life in you. You see, and then as you surrender and you learn to cooperate with the work of the Holy Spirit, it's not going to be possible for you to be bad because Jesus is living his life out in you. Do you understand? And he did, and he does. I, I was praying that God would help me to be good and didn't realize that I could never be good. Don't misunderstand me now. I'm not talking about sin and be saved. I'm saying that in ourselves there is nothing inherently good. But I learned that if Jesus comes into your life, he will transform you and you will grow in grace daily and you become more like Jesus. I needed Jesus in order to get to heaven. Could it really be that simple? Hallelujah, it is that simple. And I thank God for the wonders of grace and for righteousness by faith tonight. It was a number of months later that I was baptized and I came out of that water knowing that God had changed my life and changed my heart. I went to church as a little boy and I knew something about God, but I didn't really know God. I knew about Jesus, but I didn't really know Jesus. And I realized that what I was wanting to do all that time was know Jesus. I still want to know him more. If God could reach down into the pit... I mean, oh, he had to soil his hands to reach down and grab hold of me. If God can do that and lift me up and set my feet on solid rock, he could do that for anybody. He can do that for you, friend, if you're battling tonight. What he did for my parents' child, he can do for your children. God saved me. He gave me hope. He spoke through a church service many times that didn't quite makes sense he spoke through a crucifix he spoke through the nuns that did their very best he spoke through my father's imperfect example he spoke through the great controversy and he spoke to me through the holy word of God the sacred scriptures 
I wanted to know Jesus and Jesus made himself known in my life tonight my hope is that you will be able to say Lord I want to know you more we're gonna to pray together please bow your head with me as we pray our father tonight we thank you for Jesus who was good enough to in his grace reach down from heaven and take hold of somebody who is weak and erring and lift that one up and hold on tight Heavenly Father the journey is not over for any of us but we commit ourselves to you again this evening we want to cling to you but sometimes in our weakness even that is difficult we thank you that you are and that you are a rewarder of them that diligently seek you tonight we tell you again we want to know you more friend could that be the prayer of your heart tonight simple prayer Lord I want to know you more if you can pray that prayer tonight would you raise your hand with me Lord we want to know you more you've given us a message that is salvation to us and must be salvation to others in this world so give us grace that as we know you we also can share you father we are grateful tonight you have given all of us a testimony to share a song to sing and reason to rejoice this evening as we rest may we rest knowing we rest securely in the arms of Jesus keep us we pray and we thank you tonight in Jesus name please join me in saying amen and amen